and uh, although they're not entirely open, they're probably about as open as they ever will get. So I, I just felt now that I had access that I didn't have, say, 10 years ago. You actually use Chinese archives, too. Uh, not so much in the Chinese archives. I, I was able to interview uh, specialists in China who themselves had a little uh, access, but basically the Chinese archives on, on the Vietnam War are not open. Uh, even to Chinese uh, specialists, because they're very sensitive topics. It's uh, China and Vietnam, of course, are close neighbors, and the the Chinese don't want anything to get out that might prove difficult for them in terms of their foreign policy. Would you say that China was more of a friend to Vietnam than uh, Russia, uh, Soviet Union was? Uh, in some ways, actually, it would depend on the time that you ask the question. Uh, over over a period of let's say 70 years of the history of the Vietnamese Revolution, uh, I'm sure that China did more in terms of providing material support, uh, in terms of providing a sanctuary, in terms of providing personnel. I mean, there were one time there were four or five hundred thousand Chinese uh, personnel serving in in Vietnam during the war, which is nothing like what Russia had. Uh, if you'd ask a Vietnamese this, at least, let's say, 10 years ago, when relations between China and Vietnam were, were not very good, uh, the official Vietnamese view would be that the Soviet Union was much a much truer friend than China was. And, and I think that's because uh, China can be very arrogant and it's very patronizing to the Vietnamese, uh, just in a way, for example, that many Cubans probably feel about the United States. So the uh, the Chinese were a great friend and a great help to the Vietnamese over over the years, uh, but the Vietnamese uh, more often uh, feel that the, the Chinese were interested partly for their own reasons. You know, I was interested to read that Zhou um, Enlai, the Chinese uh, prime minister, uh, prime minister, was. Uh, was actually endorsed the partition of Vietnam in the Geneva Accords. That's and right, he did back in 1954. And the, the why, why was that? Well, the uh, I guess if you listen to the Chinese point of view, and I think probably most of the truth lies here that uh, that uh, at that particular time uh, the Chinese uh, wanted a peace settlement in Vietnam. This was when the when the Vietnamese Revolution was fighting against the French. And the Chinese were afraid at that point that if the war went on, the Americans would get sucked in on the side of the French, and that could that could be an enormous uh, provocation to the, uh, the new Chinese government. So the Chinese wanted a period of peace so that they could stabilize their government and engage in uh, economic construction. So. Their, their answer is basically they intervene to persuade the Vietnamese to accept the division of the country in order to keep the war from getting much bigger. The, the Vietnamese suspected, uh, with some justification, that that the, uh, the Chinese, uh, in part, wanted to keep Vietnam divided, not necessarily because they wanted it that way permanently, but that uh, the Chinese have their own interest in Southeast Asia, and they weren't particularly interested in seeing Vietnam become too powerful. So there, in other words, there are sort of publicly stated reasons, and then there are the kind of subliminal reasons that uh, are sometimes hard to sort out. 
And, and China also didn't want the, the coalition with Laos and uh, Cambodia, right? That, that's yeah. correct, although uh, you won't find much in the way of documentation to prove it, but uh, I've been interested in that subject over the years. That is, the, the Chinese feeling that, that they don't want the Vietnamese to dominate Laos and Cambodia, whereas the Vietnamese feel that Laos and Cambodia are in their backyard, and uh, they feel it's part of their own security perimeter. And uh, I've tried for many, many years to, to sort of pin down what the actual Chinese attitude is toward those two countries. And I have been able to ob obtain sort of private admissions by by Chinese uh, diplomatic officials that, that in fact, the Chinese, in very quiet ways, were, were trying to protect what they consider to be the autonomy of those two countries against Vietnamese domination. And, in fact, they're still doing it. If you, if uh, some of your uh, listeners uh, follow world affairs very much, uh, very, very recently, uh, uh, President Jiang Zemin of China visited Cambodia just about the same time Clinton went to uh, Vietnam. And uh, do they still welcome Prince Sihanouk? Uh, yeah. Yes, although neither the neither the Vietnamese nor the Chinese really trust him, uh -huh, yeah. uh, because in fact uh, uh, the Americans didn't trust him either. I mean, I'm not trying to make him into a, uh, a totally untrustworthy person. It's just <laughs> that uh, Sihanouk managed to survive over the years by zigzagging back and forth. Uh, between one position and another, and uh, it turns out that uh, nobody was quite sure where he stood on key issues because uh, he would never let himself get pinned down. Of course, these days he's he's lost a good deal of his actual power. He's uh, he's suffering from a number of illnesses, sure. so he doesn't have nearly the political clout that he did say 20 years ago. And uh, Stalin was never very nice to Ho Chi Minh then. No, uh, Stalin. Uh, never really, never really was quite sure whether Ho Chi Minh was a genuine communist, uh -huh. uh, because uh, Ho Chi Minh, right from the start, and by that I mean uh, shortly after he became a, a member of the French Communist Party after World War One, he went to the Soviet Union for training, and uh, right away he was very outspoken about his feelings about uh, the nature of Marxism and and uh, the way revolution should be handled and he was very independent in his views and he said that we Asian countries don't necessarily want to same, follow the same pattern that you followed in Russia and uh, Stalin didn't take those comments very gladly so he he, uh, he he never totally trusted Ho Chi Minh and Ho Chi Minh by the way rarely talked about Stalin he would talk about Lenin but he would very rarely talk about Stalin. I think it's quite clear they didn't have a very good relationship. But he, from your book, it sounds like Ho Chi Minh wasn't an ideologue. No, he was. He was. Uh, I hope this message came through to you and, and yeah. to other people who read the book. He was a genuine revolutionary, and he. I think he genuinely believed in socialism. But uh, he was not a dogmatist. Uh, he was very pragmatic, and he felt that socialism could be built in its own time when the environment in any particular country was favorable and uh, he believed in the art of the possible so he rarely talked about ideological matters and uh, uh, you know I think I think if, if he were in a position where he could put uh, uh, the socialist 
system into effect, I think he'd be very happy to do it. But uh, he didn't believe in forcing the issue, and um, uh, that was certainly one reason why many people feel that he was more patriot than he was a socialist. But you, um, but he, you also point out that he was actually kind of freaked out or uh, tried to temper the land reform uh, movement uh, that was borrowing from what was happening in, in China, um, and that he didn't like the excesses of uh, yeah, you know, that's the, the right. landlord anti-landlord campaign. That was campaign. the reform program in the 1950s when the country was divided and the North came under the control of his, uh, his Communist Party. And uh, they immediately engaged in land reform, uh, certainly for the purposes of dividing up the land more equitably among the people. Uh, but as you said, there were a number of excesses committed by some of the more zealous uh, party members at the local level, and they were following the Chinese model, which meant that many innocent people were punished along with let's say, people who might be considered guilty of, of uh, crimes against the population. And Ho Chi Minh was clearly unhappy about it, but at the same time he was committed to land reform, so he was caught between a rock and a hard place. And uh, I think it's one of the less savory aspects of his life was that he, he did not stand up in a very forthright manner uh, and, uh, and, and say, look, land reform is fine, but we, we have to do this in a fair manner. He, he let a lot of excesses be committed without really standing up until it was too late. You know, the, uh, this uh, attempt to uh, kind of copy uh, China at the time, uh, which was kind of reading Chairman Mao's thought and stuff like that, um, what kind of, was there a Ho Chi Minh thought kind of that was going on, or was that later? <laughs> That's a good question. The, uh, if you go to Vietnam today, they'll try to tell you there is one. Uh, but, uh, in fact, there really isn't. Uh, Mao Zedong never, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Ho Chi Minh never really tried to come up with any very coherent uh, set of ideas representing the, the, the way in which a country uh, moved toward socialism and communism. He was quite systematic in terms of devising a revolutionary strategy to put the Communist Party in power. You could say there is a a Ho Chi Minh strategy for seizing power in that sense. But you can't say that there is a Ho Chi Minh thought which encompasses all of his ideas on what socialism is all about and, uh, and, uh, and things of that type. Uh, Mao Zedong was much more interested in these ideas when, than Ho was, and there were uh, some amusing incidents in his life where people would would uh, ask him why he didn't write more philosophical treatises like Chairman Mao did. And he said, I'll let Chairman Mao do that kind of thing. I'll just be my own simple self. And there, obviously what was going on here was that, that Ho Chi Minh was expressing a little bit of his bemusement at the arrogance of Mao Zedong. There was no cult of personality then. Well, um, that's... That's a, a tricky matter. I mean, certainly from one standpoint, there wasn't. He didn't build himself up to be the the single dictatorial leader like a Stalin or a Mao did. And in fact, his leadership uh, over his party, uh, right from the start, was very collegial. He, he tried to win supporters and get his way by persuasion, 
and by argument and consensus rather than by imposing his views and punishing those who disagreed with him. So uh, you, you certainly don't have that idea of the one single leader and what he says uh, is gospel. The great helmsman. Pardon? The great the helmsman. The great helmsman, quite, quite right. I mean, dearer than our fathers and our mothers, that kind of thing. But, uh, but Ho Chi Minh realized when he was uh, quite young that uh, one of his great assets was his unassuming personality. And uh, he grew to rely on that image. That is the Uncle Ho that so many of us know, and certainly those of his, of your listeners who, who maybe uh, were, were old enough to remember uh, back the 1960s that image of the Uncle Ho who kissed babies and that sort of thing. Uh, I don't say that it was an inaccurate picture of Ho. He he was indeed a, a in general a very, uh, a very. Uh, I don't know, he, he's the kind of person who was very easy to like, he was a good sense of humor and soft-spoken and so forth. But he deliberately played on that image in order to get his political objectives. So uh, there was a kind of cult of, of Ho Chi Minh which he, co he connived in creating. And uh, you can see it uh, very much in spades in what's going on in Vietnam today, playing on the image of Ho Chi Minh and building a social society. There's a lot of statues of him with uh, holding uh, kids. Uh, sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, doing simple things like feeding his goldfish and right. planting a tree. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a little bit like the, the American image of the president, as you say, kissing babies and shaking the hands and that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, there, there's a little, there's a, just enough falseness in it that make me realize that he was very conscious of what he was doing. So do you think it's worse now, you know, this mausoleum that was built? Uh, I was there, and, you know, would you think he would have freaked out or been appalled at the huge kind of I, building I do think built? so, yes. I mean, I think he would have understood the motives of his of his successors. I mean, they, he had written a testament in which he asked to be cremated, oh. to have his ashes placed in at three locations, in the north and the center and the southern part of the country, to symbolize his dedication to the, the unity of his people. And when he died, the, the people who took over from him, who were his longtime colleagues, ignored his testament. They didn't publish that part of the testament. Oh. And they decided to build that mausoleum. And uh, about fif 15 years later, the, somebody came out and said, you, you really didn't follow Ho's testament here. And they had to admit that they had ignored his request. And they explained that they felt that by building the mausoleum, they made Ho Chi Minh available to all the people. And I think Ho would understand the motive. Uh, in other words, using his image in order to promote the future uh, uh, socialist society. But I, I think he probably would have looked at that mausoleum and said, what a, what a horrible misrepresentation of what I stood for, because it's a very, you've seen it, it's a very heavy-looking uh, thing. It just doesn't represent his personality at all. But, you know, people still line up to go to go see him, right? Sure, they yeah. do, and that's why I think, you know, I think when he would, uh, if he were alive or if he's in some Marxist heaven with 
Karl Marx and Lenin, if he looks <laughs> down on this, he would probably have to admit that that it has had that kind of success. I think what he would have liked would have been something a lot simpler in all three parts of the country, uh, and to have people go there. Uh, but of course, yeah. that that never came to pass. I was there one winter, and it was closed. Uh, do they send his body to Moscow to be, you know, preserved better? Uh, I'm sorry that I can't answer that <laughs> precisely. I, I know they I know they do have to preserve it, and yeah. I understand that it was very poorly done. Oh. Uh, when I've seen his, I've been to the mausoleum two or three times, and and the body looks like it's in decent condition. But I understand that the cremation, the, the embalming was kind of messed up. And uh, uh, I, I, the one interesting story uh, uh, about it is that uh, uh, when Clinton planned his visit there in right. November, uh, the Vietnamese wanted him to visit the mausoleum like everybody else who comes officially. Sure. And the Clinton people made it clear that they didn't think that would be appropriate. So the uh, the Vietnamese government, uh, this is my interpretation of it, they decided to take him off the hook and they closed the mausoleum to everybody. <laughs> so but the, but he they probably didn't need cleaning. They just, they just didn't want the issue to come up. But they posed him in front of a big uh, bust of Ho Chi Minh. And, yes, uh, and, uh, uh, and I understand that th th that picture... <laughs> was was shown in many American newspapers, and the White House was outraged. They <laughs> didn't like that. Yeah, I mean the New York Times. Uh, yeah, Saturday I saw that myself. Did and, it in and, color, you know, full color. And I have color. to admit, uh, uh, for for personal and probably very selfish reasons, I was delighted because I <laughs> I thought maybe some people would say that and say, "Who is that fellow?" Maybe I had to read the biography. <laughs> Help sell your book. <laughs> I haven't heard anybody who's been persuaded yet. Well, I did, they did. Um, they did run that picture when I did a story on um, on Vietnam a few weeks ago in the OC Weekly, and somebody actually removed it from my office wall the other day. Oh, really? So I don't know. Not, the, not wanting his picture there. Well, I'm not sure if what the reason was. Yeah, what the motivation. <laughs> Either that, or they wanted a souvenir. Right, right, right. <laughs> Usually, when people take stuff off my wall, they return it. They go make a copy and return But this did. This, there was a big hole there. Until well, maybe I, it was the Secret <laughs> Service. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, do you think that, um, you know, that article, actually in that article I was trying to um, report on a Vietnam trade conference yeah. in which a, in which a, a Vietnamese-American lawyer, uh, kind of a cold warrior type, was saying that we actually won the war because uh, now capitalism is victorious over socialism there. Is that, um, um, you know, do you think we won the war? Well, uh, that's a that's a pretty distorted way to look at it. I I I, I look at it this way, uh, and it's not really a very unique way. I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners have heard this before. Uh, we, the United States, got involved in Vietnam originally back in the early. 1950s and up into the early 1960s, not not specifically to save Vietnam from communism, although that obviously became the focus of our efforts. The, the basic reason we got involved in Vietnam in the beginning was to try to prevent the spread of communism all over the region. So we weren't trying to save Vietnam itself. We were trying either to save Vietnam or at least to delay the fall of Vietnam 
for a long enough period so that the other countries in Southeast Asia could stabilize their own systems and build uh, either capitalist or moderately socialist governments. And uh, if you if you look back on that, and, and that goal eventually got forgotten because our we we got we became so focused on saving Vietnam that it became an objective in its own right. But if you look back on the situation today, uh, at admittedly very high cost, I'm not trying to make a judgment as to whether this was justified or not. At admittedly high cost, uh, what indeed did happen was that although Vietnam uh, did eventually become unified under the Communist Party. By the time that happened, the rest of the region was uh, was relatively stable. And uh, I mean, beyond that, uh, uh, if we were concerned about Chinese expansion into Southeast Asia, uh, my feeling would be that if there's any one single country in Southeast Asia that would resist Chinese domination, it would be the Vietnamese. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Yeah. So, so in a in a strange paradoxical sort of way we we didn't win the war in Vietnam but we won the broader campaign uh, to uh, preserve friendly governments elsewhere in the region and you know I think any American looking at that would have to dis decide whether or not all our efforts in Vietnam were justified for that and I'm sure a lot of people would say they weren't but, but I mean just going back to your question yeah yeah you but said, of course, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, I mean, you were in Vietnam uh, on the surface. It looks like it has a lot of, uh, there's a lot of capitalism being developed there, but uh, the government is still very firmly uh, uh, Marxist. Right. And so, uh, you know, people should not be misled into thinking that Vietnam itself is becoming a capitalist society because it isn't yet. It's a largely rural society still. That's correct. Yeah. Certainly, seventy percent of the people are still rice farmers. And um, you know, you also argue that it would be misleading to think that the U.S. Uh, the uh, Vietnam would have, or uh, Ho Chi Minh would have, uh, embraced the U.S. Uh, be, uh, just because uh, you know he he wrote a letter to Truman and, and you know never got a reply. Mm -hmm. You think it's kind of being kind of optimistic to think that. Well, there, there's a there's a little bit of naivete in the way uh, we Americans look at Ho Chi Minh, and I I put it we Americans because I don't want to sort of single out some. Uh, there's kind of a general feeling that that Ho Chi Minh very much admired American civilization, and that if only we had offered our hand to him uh, back in the 1940s or even a little bit later, that he would have taken our hand and Vietnam would have been a a friend of the United States and maybe not a socialist society. And uh, I think the more I've learned about Ho Chi Minh, the more I realize that, that he, he did have a very ambiguous feeling about the United States. He, he admired our uh, dedication to uh, freedom in a very broad sense and our individuality and our energy and our general sense of justice and our dislike of colonialism. Of course, we had been a colonial country ourselves. But he also, he had lived in the United States briefly when he was young, and uh, he did not like our capitalist system. And as I mentioned before, he was he was a genuine believer in socialism. And 
when he appealed to the United States back in the 40s and really like down to his death, he occasionally would write letters appealing to the better sense of America. Uh, a part of that was simply his, uh, his ability to sort of play on his image. Uh, he was very good at flattering allies and potential adversaries. He, he flattered the Chinese and the French and the Russians as much as he did us. So uh, uh, in a way, we're being misled by Ho Chi Minh. He's playing a little shell game with us. And uh, I, I think there, there might have been a lost opportunity in the 1940s if we had grasped his hand. Uh, and we, we might have been able to work out some kind of relationship. But he would have he would have diddled us unmercifully. I mean, he would have used this for whatever he wanted, and then he would have done whatever he wanted. And if he'd been offered more by the Chinese, he would have switched to the Chinese. So I don't think that... Oh, I see. Hmm. You know, I, I, in other words, I don't believe that there was some lost opportunity when he could, we, we could have made him into a, 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 a friendly capitalist. I just don't think that would have happened. Why, why did he um, join the OSS or work for the OSS, the precursor of the CIA? Uh, that was very much a part of what I was uh, saying a minute ago. Um, when the war, that is the, the World War II, was just coming to an end, uh, he was hoping to seize power with his with his uh, revolutionary movement uh, at the end of the war. Because when the Japanese surrendered, they'd leave a political vacuum in uh, in the old Indochina covered controlled by the French, and he wanted to seize power and declare a new state. And he knew he wasn't going to get any help from Russia because Stalin didn't trust him. So, uh, and, you know, the Soviet Union was, was far away. So he realized that if he wanted international recognition, he had to win the recognition from the victorious allies. And the United States at that time was fighting for the liberation of people and self-determination. This was part of the Atlantic Charter. And uh, he felt that if he could establish contact with uh, members of American intelligence outfits operating in South China, that uh, maybe that arrangement would give him some credibility. And when the war was over, then maybe the White House would uh, recognize his new government. So. Uh, he offered the help of his movement to these intelligence groups operating in South China. As you said, many of them were OSS, the, the pre-CIA organization. And he established uh, a working relationship. Uh, the trouble is, after the war was over, he tried to parlay this relationship into uh, American support for his movement. But when the war was over, uh, the, the White House was very afraid of antagonizing the French uh, because of our concerns about communism in Europe. So uh, when he sent these letters to Harry Truman, uh, Truman ignored the letters. You, you said that actually the State Department never uh, forwarded it to the That's correct. White House? You, yeah, I, I must thank you for having obviously read the book because uh, <laughs> that, that's one of the details that came out. What actually happened was that the letters he sent 
uh, and I guess any listener should be aware of this, when you write a letter to the president, it doesn't go directly to him. <laughs> uh, when I was in the State Department, I used to write, write letters for John Kennedy all the time. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they get sent to some little mousy fellow in an office somewhere. Who, who signs? Because I've been asked to answer your letter to the president. <laughs> who signs? How do you and, sign it? What yeah. happened? At, well, what happened in this case was that yeah. the letters were sent to the European desk in the oh. State Department huh. because uh, Indochina was part of France. Oh, I see. <laughs> so, so the Europeans said we're not going to send these letters on to the White House because we don't want to irritate the French. Oh. oh. So. Uh, what it what it came down to, in other words, was a struggle between the European division and the East Asian division in the State Department as to who was going to get the ear of the president, and the Europeanist won. Yeah, we're talking with uh, Professor William Dyker, uh, who wrote a new book, who's written a new book called Ho Chi Minh. The show here is KUCI um, Subversity, and the number is eight two four five eight two four. Uh, area code 949 if you want to chat with uh, the author. Uh, the opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. Why did the French uh, not uh, give in to the Viet Minh at the time uh, after World War II? Why did they hang on and then, you know, basically oppress the people? Mm-hmm. Well, the, uh, I think the French, the French, uh, were truly proud of their empire, and I thought, uh, I think that uh, for the French, the their control over Indochina, as as over various colonies elsewhere in the world, in Africa and the Middle East, uh, was a very much a part of their identity as a great nation. And uh, I think we all know uh, France was a great power 200 years ago, uh, under Louis the Fourteenth, and then under Napoleon. But it obviously slipped in its political influence, and I think this was a way for the French people, and certainly for French elites, to feel that they were a major player on the world stage, and uh, uh, it, uh, as a result, it was a lot harder for the French to give up as a colonial uh, country than, for example, it was for uh, the British. The British, I think, gave in with more grace, and uh, the, the French just found it very hard to give in, and uh, it was really, I'm sure, they, they fought for eight years in Indochina before they gave in, and then they fought for a while in Algeria before they gave in there. So I think it has to do with French pride. You know, I saw a movie um, that a, a Vietnamese uh, director, the the most famous director in Vietnam, Dang Ngat Minh, did uh, called Hanoi Winter 46. Mm, and, I haven't seen that. I'd yeah. love to. And uh, I actually met with him this uh, last time I was in Hanoi, mm-hmm. and he had been in Southern California to sh- actually show the film, <laughs> and uh, they showed it in Orange County at pa- as part of the Newport Beach International oh, really? Film Festival. Oh, really? There's a videotape available. I'd love to see it. And uh, yeah, and it's a really it's pretty close to how you depict the period actually. Mm-hmm. Although he was really sick, uh, he was in bed a lot, and. The sh- the sh- movie deep, uh, goes around, uh, revolves around sorry, uh, uh, interpreter, a Vietnamese uh, student actually that serves as the French interpreter f- mm-hmm. uh, for him with uh, Saint Saint-Tony, Saint-Tony, uh, the Saint-Tony. French negotiator, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. and uh, so when they first meet, uh, 
actually he, Ho Chi Minh seems fine, but then later on he's like pretty seems very sick, and then the city was evacuated. He was, and he yeah. was quite sick uh, in the fall of 1946. Yes, and then uh, he the city was evacuated, and the, so the, and then the, they I remember reading your book, and also in the film they show the roadblocks set up in the street to uh, block the French uh, That's right. tanks or whatever. And so that it seems fairly close to to. Well, I'm glad story. it's close to reality yeah. because uh, this is one of those cases where reality is more dramatic than fiction. And a lot of people didn't know that about that incident, the '46 incident. At least among people, my friends who saw the film, they didn't. Well, and, yeah. you know, the the way the French portrayed it, this was how the 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 first war in Indochina began when the. Vietnamese attacked French installations in in Hanoi, and the French struck back. And then, as you said, the the Vietnamese retired out to the countryside and began a guerrilla war. And the French portrayed it as a, a sneak attack, uh, similar to say the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And and from their standpoint, I can understand why they would do it. But but they provoked. would argue yeah, that they provoked that, that they you know that they had to defend themselves because the 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 French were, in effect, uh, basically demanding that the Vietnamese government essentially disarm, uh, which would have made them totally vulnerable to the restoration of Vietnamese sovereignty. So uh, it, it, it's a very dramatic story, and it's one where you know there there are different versions of the truth. You know when um, when there was this big um, fight last year in Little Saigon over the flag of. Yeah, I and certainly a, remember it, right. And the portrait of Ho Chi Minh. One of the people I interviewed who was actually a, a kind of a left-wing Vietnamese, he was criticizing the Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese flag and said that was a colonial flag that was imposed by Bao Dai mm -hmm. on the South, that was actually uh, taking parts of the French flag that was used in Vietnam, the French version of the Vietnamese flag, I guess. Yeah. And is that true? There was a uh, kind of a... I, I'm sorry to say that I, I don't know how the South Vietnamese flag evolved, and uh, there may be, you know, there may be there may be some truth in the sense that the the way the flag was chosen, it may have had something to do with the flag that was created in 1949. It's, right. it's something I had to pursue. It, yeah, it's I can a, send you it's the a, you know, article. It, it's, what it, it's obviously symbolic of kind of the larger truth that the. The, the South Vietnamese government that emerged after the Geneva Conference was the successor of the Bao Dai government, as you said. And right. the Bao Dai government had been created by the French to fight against Ho Chi Minh. And uh, for those people who support Ho Chi Minh and the Vietnamese Revolution, uh, they look upon anybody who served uh, in the South Vietnamese government as a collaborator. Uh, in actuality, there were there were South Vietnamese who didn't like the French. Uh, that's not true of Bao Dai necessarily, but uh, but it is it is true that there's a that the, the South Vietnamese government always had a little bit of that stain of having been part of the of the collaboration with the French against the against Ho Chi Minh and his government, and that's certainly one of the reasons why they had a hard time getting. Uh, credibility among the Vietnamese people. You, you talk about the exodus to the south from the north of Catholics and other people during in the 50s mm -hmm. at, at the time of the partition, but 
other people like uh, Ralph McGeehy, you know, who was formerly in the CIA, have argued that that was kind of a scare campaign that was uh, drummed up by the CIA to uh, scare people to go south. Uh, you think that's true? Yeah, well, that was that was part of it. In other words, the there were a lot of people who went south uh, after the Geneva Conference because they just felt they would lose under the communists. And, of course, among those people who felt they would lose would be Catholics because Catholics are identified in, in the public mind, uh, certainly in many people in Vietnam, they're identified with the old colonial authority. So uh, uh, even if the CIA hadn't been involved in scare tactics or anything like that, there would have been a lot of Catholics who would have wanted to go south, just like there were supporters of Ho Chi Minh who wanted to go north. But uh, I'm sure the CIA was a part of it, and the Catholic Church uh, hierarchy in North Vietnam, there were, uh, in many cases, entire villages of people, uh, of Vietnamese Catholics living in the Red River Delta who were sent south because their priests told them that uh, the Virgin Mary is going south, you better go too. Uh, so uh, it's, it probably is an overstatement to say that this was all a CIA program. It was something that was carried on very actively by by the South Vietnamese, you know, the, the non-communist South Vietnamese government and the Catholic Church also. But uh, uh, some of the southern, you know, the pro-Vietnam, the pro, oh, sorry. Uh, the pro-Viet Minh people uh, moved north, right? There are a lot of, some people yeah, stayed in the right. south. Maybe, uh, maybe as many as 70 or 80,000. Uh, how many thousand? Well, many? It's, we don't know exactly, but maybe as many as 70 or 80,000. And many of them, many of them were uh, uh, young people who were, who were uh, uh, sent north for training so that they could be returned to the south to provide cadres for you know, whatever happened there. And so they stayed behind uh, to carry on the revolution? Well, some of the Viet Minh supporters, the Viet Minh, of course, was the the name of the movement that Ho Chi Minh founded uh, back in the 40s and 50s. Uh, they left the skeleton staff of people in the South to represent their interests because they were hoping for national elections. And maybe there were four or 5,000 uh, active uh activists who were left in the South to, to try to represent the interest of the revolutionary movement. But then a lot of the younger people were were sent north so that they could uh, gain an education. Some of them were trained in, uh, in uh, various types of uh, military camps to teach them how to engage in revolutionary activities and propaganda and things of that type. And then when the, then when the, uh, the South uh, began uh, uh, to move toward what eventually became the, the war in South Vietnam, then a lot of these young people who'd been sent north for training were sent back down the Ho Chi Minh Trail into South Vietnam so that they could become the, the leading group, the leading cadres, the commanders of the South Vietnamese forces who were fighting against the South Vietnamese government. Did you um do you think that though that um you, uh, sorry I change the topic um about uh, Ho Chi Minh's personal life for instance mm -hmm. you cover a lot of the women that he was uh, that he was involved with did um do you think of him as a kind of a 
crazed sexual kind of person or because there's some uh, of the criticism no, I, of him I, lately. I, I don't, and uh, there, there's probably not, uh, there's really not enough information out on his personal behavior that, that would certainly allow me to make any broad generalization about it. But it, it certainly appears to me that, that uh, Ho Chi Minh uh, found a need for sexual relief uh, periodically, uh, right down to the last two years of his life. Uh, I don't know how important it was to him. Uh, he, he doesn't appear to have had as strong a need as some of our own presidents. But uh, I think it's fairly obvious that uh, that uh, that uh, right down into his 70s, uh, he was still sexually active. But he, he didn't. He certainly didn't. Uh, he didn't see the need for any kind of permanent companion, and of course that was part of his image that he he was a celibate and he was uh, you know, his, his his family was the whole Vietnamese people. That was part of the image that he portrayed. I'm hearing a lot of interference. Can you hear it? I can still hear you. I keep wondering if that's a caller trying to get through. Oh, maybe. Let me try. Well, maybe that's, yeah, there's some line interference, yeah. Uh -huh. I see. Okay, uh, I, I cleared it over here. <laughs> okay. So, you you know, because I saw this, uh, there was a banner, uh, there was a portrait, uh, a museum that had pictures of Ho Chi Minh by uh, C. David Thomas. Yeah, I talked with David. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, there were uh, protesters from outside, uh, outside the museum from Orange County, and they had big banners calling... Um, you know, Ho Chi Minh, uh, child molester. Yeah, they, like yeah, they. Uh, oh, <laughs> well, there are stories about it, and uh, uh, if you were able to get to the end of my massive book, you know that there are there are some uh, charges. Right. That toward the end of his life, uh, he had a number of very young concubines who, who, you know, may have been just sent there as nurses' aides or something. And you know, just not a, not enough is known about these incidents for me to come up with any kind of hypothesis. Uh, it's hard for me uh, to be able to get a, a lot of credence to these things because uh, so many of the things are written about Ho Chi Minh are either are either written by his admirers or by his critics, and I try to sort of pick through them and find the ones that have the most veracity, and it. That's why I think there, there does appear, uh, it appears fairly obvious that he was active. And you may remember that story in the book where uh, toward the end of his life, he actually asked the Chinese to provide him with a Chinese wife. And he had already had a Chinese wife earlier. He had a yeah. Chinese wife uh, back in the 1920s. And yeah. uh, some people speculate that he had always missed her, that she may have left him rather than the other way around. And right. uh, that... Uh, and that somehow he felt that the uh, Chinese women were more attractive to him for some reason than Vietnamese women. But the, the story that's told by Chinese sources is that he said the problem with with having a, 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 a paramour, or however you want to put it, with a, as a Vietnamese was that he had become so mythologized yeah. uh, that... Uh, any woman would just say, "Oh, Uncle Ho, you're such a wonderful icon," and he he wanted a more earthy relationship. So, <laughs> so 
so he, he tried to get the, the Chinese government to provide him with a Vietnamese uh, with a Chinese wife, and apparently they came up with four or five names. Uh, I wonder who these volunteers were. And uh, the Vietnamese uh, party leadership decided to turn down their quest because they thought it would be humiliating. <laughs> but what happened to the children of these um, liaisons, I guess? Uh, well, that's where all the rumors swirl, and, and uh, I've, I've tried to pin things down on my uh, frequent trips to Vietnam, and every once in a while I'll find somebody who will kind of roll his eyes and say, yes, we, we, we're pretty sure that uh, one of his children is now a fairly, has a fairly senior position in the Vietnamese government, but uh, it, it's... Uh, we don't, you know, we don't have an independent council in Hanoi to, to sort through these things. So uh, uh, there are all kinds. In fact, I've heard uh, people in Moscow say that he has some children there. Huh. Uh, but so far, no one is talking. And uh, I mean, like any biographer, I guess, I'm, I'm waiting for something like this to burst out just after my book is published. <laughs> you know... Um there was some controversy when, you know, in addition to the flag thing, you know, the uh, the paper I write for OC Weekly also ran a cover story with Ho Chi Minh on the cover uh-huh. at that time, and the um, editor then, one of the editors, Nick Scow, wrote a, uh, a profile of Ho that was sympathetic, and then he got a letter from one of the readers saying that um, Ho was a traitor because he wanted to go to France or wanted to go into French schools, because mm-hmm. he said, so do you think that was just his way of to to kind of learn the tools of the of the oppressor, so that yeah, could, that's yeah, yeah. that that sounds like the the, the criticism that's made uh, because uh, when Ho Chi Minh first went abroad in 1911, he was in his early 20s then. He wrote a letter, which is still exists in the French archives, in which he applied for admission uh, to the. Uh, uh, school run by the French Ministry of Colonies to train administrators. All right. And uh, his request was turned down because he didn't have a uh, an influential sponsor. And uh, uh, critics of Ho Chi Minh will point to that letter and say that uh, he actually wanted to be uh, uh, of service to the French in maintaining their domination over over. Uh, over the Vietnamese people, I don't really read it that way. I, mm-hmm. I think at that point he he hadn't really uh, determined exactly what he he was going to do with his life. He was already quite critical of the French, uh, but I think he he might have actually considered the possibility that he would go into the into the sort of French civil service and then try to uh, improve the situation from within because. Right up until about 1919 or 1920, he appeared to have some optimism that maybe the French could be persuaded to reform their ways and then leave the Vietnamese uh, with an independent government. And it was only about 1920, I think, when he abandoned that idea. And that's when he decided to become a Marxist. So, so I mean, the critics might be right in this sense, that he... he, he, he he did consider the possibility that maybe the French could be put to good use, uh, but uh, once the French made it clear that they weren't ready to grant self-determination to the Vietnamese, he turned his back on them. Why did um, 
why did they finally acknowledge that that the the name he used the the patriot name Ai Guo uh-huh. was that why did the Vietnamese government at, or why did they finally say that was Ho Chi Minh's name? Um, well, I think uh, this came about in 1958 or 1959, uh, which was uh, four years after the Geneva Conference. And there were, of course, two Vietnams at that time, and the northern government was was clearly moving towards socialism. Uh, for many years, Ho Chi Minh had denied that he was actually fellow Win the Patriot, because Win the Patriot had been a, an agent of the Soviet Union. And uh, for many, many years, Ho Chi Minh was trying to hide the communist complexion of his government and of his, his own background. So he... He used the name Ho Chi Minh to dis- to disguise the fact that he'd been an active revolutionary before the war, and uh, for many many years he simply wouldn't admit to the fact that he was this win the patriot. And when they finally decided whether he may have decided himself, it was probably a decision made with his colleagues. I think it was at a time, first of all, when it was quite clear that Vietnam was moving towards socialism, so why would you deny the fact that you were an active revolutionary? It was too late to appeal to moderate Vietnamese or to the Americans because they already felt that Ho Chi Minh was a communist. And I think also at this particular point in life, uh, he probably recognized that it was necessary to create an image around himself uh, as a kind of uh, symbol of the revolution for the Vietnamese people, and that meant that he had to give himself a background. Uh, you know, you, in the past, he had simply said, I was a simple patriot, but he would never admit to where he came from or anything. So I think this was just a way of sort of filling out his personality and uh, identifying Ho Chi Minh with the image of socialism. Because it was just at this particular point that the, the country began to move toward building a socialist society. So but, it's just a way of coming clean, in other words, of, of admitting his background. But is it uh, fair for the critics now to like blame him for everything that's happened to them, like to be that they are refugees and both people and... You know, because from your book, it sounds like he wasn't that much in power. Uh, well, yeah, that, it, yeah, that's a good question, and I've, I've wrestled with it myself, because I, I, frankly, when I was on my book tour out in California in, uh, in November, I, I expected uh, to have some criticism, I expected some demonstrations, because as you said, they've, these have, they've taken place in other cases. Yeah. And so I, I, I wanted to get my thoughts as much as possible clear on this. Uh, I, th- I think as the leader of the Vietnamese revolutionary movement, he has to bear uh, responsibility for, the, for a good deal that happened in its name. So for those Vietnamese who suffered uh, personally or members of their family suffered uh, during the revolution, I can understand why they would identify Ho Chi Minh as one, if not the main source of their, of of their of their own personal tragedy. So, you know, I'm I'm not one to, to try to tell them, of Vietnamese what he should feel about his country and and who's responsible for it. I, 
I do think uh, that Ho Chi Minh was a genuine patriot. Uh, he, he was. Some people say he was. He was actually a, a, a navyish communist uh, who was going to sell his country out to the Kremlin. I, I don't think he saw himself that way. I thought. I think he was a genuine socialist, but he was also a patriot, and he firmly believed that that the path he was following was the best one for his country. And uh, I think the, the one thing I can both blame him for and excuse him for is that, is that uh, he, he did not personally condone uh, some of the more brutal excesses that were created by his regime. And I think he was genuinely distressed uh, by some of the things that were done in his name in the 1950s. And I think by that time he had lost power and his country was basically controlled by some very hardline militant elements who were much more influenced by Mao Zedong and Stalin than they were by Ho Chi Minh. And what I fault him for is that uh, having seen this happen, he did not stand up. Uh, and throw his influence and his uh, considerable prestige uh, behind an effort to stop these excesses and try to create the kind of society that he said he believed in. He, he was quiet for the most part. He did step in and apologize for the land reform program, uh, but it was, uh, it was quite late when he did so, and it was fairly ineffectual. So I think, in other words, there are some extenuating circumstances. If Ho Chi Minh had had as much power as many of his critics said he did, yeah. I, I don't think he would have created quite the same kind of government that was created. But, I mean, he created, he, you know, he brought these people into the movement and he turned them loose and he said, this is what I want to do, and so that he has to bear responsibility for it. You know, one of the more fascinating chapters was this, um, the chapter on Gim Bien Phu, and I never actually read such a, you know, account of what happened. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty, you know, amazed at, uh, at the, the how they, you know, strategized to surround the, the French fort, I guess there. Yeah, and a lot of that. Uh, yeah, and I, I, in a way, I'm sorry I couldn't write more about it because it's yeah. such a dramatic story. But of course, my publishers were, were, were trying to keep the book under a. A thousand pages, but, uh, <laughs> but as you said, I, I, the strategy is interesting, and uh, I think what's coming out now uh, is uh, is uh, first of all how much influence the Chinese advisors had, and uh, right. uh, they you know helped to create this uh, this battle, and then uh, I guess another interesting thing is is that uh, people like uh, Vo Win Jap, some of your listeners will remember Vo Win Jap was one of the Ho Chi Minh's main strategist, and he was in charge of the Jin Bien Phu campaign. Uh, he was so nervous about the campaign uh, when it was underway that he almost drew back. And it was the Chinese who said, uh, don't stop now, you got to keep going. Did, did you meet him? Did you meet him? Yes, I did meet him, but uh, did not have uh, a lengthy conversation with him. Unfortunately, when I had the best chance to do it, there was a last-minute uh, big meeting of the leading members of the government for this reform program. So uh, I've, I've never had a lengthy interview with him. And uh, looking back in retrospect, I, I don't think it made much difference because I've talked to a, a few people who have interviewed him. And uh, you ask him a very direct question, and he spends 15 minutes telling you whatever he wants to say.
Could you could you bring your book back to Vietnam or to Vietnam? Uh, well, would I'm going to try. Would they, uh, would they fact, like it? Would they like it over there? I don't. Uh, I'm I'm really waiting to hear what kind of response I get because I of course I've met many people over there and uh, uh, there are it has been taken back to Vietnam by some other people who've gone back in the last couple of months and. Uh, and it wasn't wasn't I'm, seized. I'm, I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping to to get some response sometime in the next few weeks. Well, we actually out of, out of time. Thank you very much. Okay. And I'll keep in touch. Thank okay. you, Dan. Thank you. Bye bye. Uh, we were talking with Professor Dyker, um, author of a new book, uh, Ho Chi Minh, by Hyperion from Hyperion Press. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Stay tuned. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI.
Irvine. Coming up, alternative news with Dan Zhang. A bomb somewhere contaminating atmosphere and blackening the sky. It's good news week. Someone's found a way to give the rotting dead a will to live, go on and never die. Have you heard the news? What did it say? Who's won that race? What's the weather like today? It's good news week. Lots of blood in Asia now, they butchered up the sacred cow, they've got a lot to eat. It's good news week. Doctors finding many ways of wrapping brains and metal trays to keep us from the heat. Do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 